This is the Raising Freethinkers podcast. I'm Dale McGowan, editor and co-author of Raising Freethinkers and Parenting Beyond Belief, books for raising compassionate, curious kids without religion. This is part two in my series on parenting in a religious, non-religious, mixed marriage. Episode 25, Snip and Dip. A lot of the issues in the religious-non-religious mix run through the relationship like threads, extended family issues, church-going, communication, all of these ebb and flow over time as couples find their level and hopefully refine their relationship skills. But three things stand out as specific moments instead of ongoing threads, three events that test and define the relationship. One is the first discovery of the religious difference. Another is the wedding. And the third, and often the most challenging, is the birth of the first child. A married couple can often agree to disagree, even about something as personal as religious beliefs. But a child manifests the relationship in an awe-inspiring way. Two people, two sets of genes, two families come together to create a single new human life. 24 years after the birth of my firstborn, I still can't get over that. It's beautiful and weird. Now, the child is also, for better and worse, this unique vessel for the hopes and dreams of the parents. Right? And when one parent is religious and the other is not, these hopes and dreams can take very different forms, creating a new level of conflict. And it starts early. One morning in August 1995, I stood in a recovery room of our local hospital, exhausted from watching my wife give birth. She was also tired for some reason, maybe from watching me watch her, and was drifting in and out of sleep. A nurse approached me through the fog and asked if we wanted our son circumcised. Her pen was poised expectantly over a clipboard. My long silence confirmed that I hadn't thought about it one bit. Most people do, she said. Now, if I'd been a dad for more than an hour, I might have said, well, if most people jumped off a cliff. But I was new at this, so I just nodded, and I signed. And the next day, the knife fell. The circumcision was originally a religious ceremony, a gesture of faithfulness to God. A weird gesture of faithfulness. Despite its near universality now, it was not at all common outside of Jewish and Muslim practice until the 1890s when a few religious enthusiasts, including the strange character John Harvey Kellogg, recommended circumcision as a cure for, quote, masturbatory insanity. For girls, he recommended applying carbolic acid to the clitoris. Like I said, strange guy. Now, Kellogg spent much of his professional effort combating the sexual impulse and helping others to do the same, claiming a plague of masturbation-related deaths in which, quote, a victim literally dies by his own hand and offering circumcision as a vital defense 
Neither the plague, nor war, nor smallpox, nor similar diseases have produced results so disastrous to humanity as this pernicious habit of masturbation, warned Dr. Alan Clark, who was one of Kellogg's co-crusaders. Now, given all this hyperbole by well-titled professionals, the attitude of American parents in the 1890s turned overnight from horror at the barbarity of the unchristian practice of circumcision to immediate conviction that it would save their boys from short and insane lives. It was even reimagined as a symbol of Christian fidelity and membership in the church. And a number of supposed health benefits were made up on flimsy evidence. But organizations including the American Academy of Pediatrics and the American Academy of Family Physicians have issued statements declining to recommend the practice, suggesting that any benefits are marginal at best. The practice almost ended completely in the UK when a 1949 research paper noted that 16 to 19 infant deaths per year were attributable to complications from the procedure. Now, regardless of religious perspective, parents should approach the decision with all information, including the mandates of their faith, if any, and expert medical opinions. Now, since my wife Becca's Christian identity did not include a circumcision mandate, our decision wasn't a religious one, just an unfortunate matter of going with the majority when I was tired. And a nurse told me that all the cool kids were doing it. If we had a do-over, I would absolutely decline. No invasive medical procedure should be done that involves risk with few, if any, known benefits. It's a form of genital mutilation, after all, even though a more familiar one. There's also no rush. The boy can choose to go under the knife at 18 if he wants to do that. Now, knowing how unlikely that is should give parents pause. So that was the first decision with the religious history that we ran into. And even without any religious pressure, we got it wrong. So that's the snip. Next for us and for a lot of mixed couples was the dip, baptism. Now here I had a stronger opinion. I did not want my kids baptized. And while doing the research for my book about religious, non-religious mixed marriages, In Faith and in Doubt, I interviewed a number of couples who had similar conversations to ours. One of them was Sarah, an independent Christian, married to Justin, a secular humanist. I always thought of the christening in salvational terms, said Sarah. My kids would be baptized to join their souls to Christ. That's how I always understood it. But when our daughter was born, my husband said he didn't want her baptized. Justin said, I wanted her to make her own decision when she was older without having to deal with a choice that had been made for her by her parents. And Sarah said, but I just couldn't imagine not having it done. So she talked to her pastor and learned that her church saw baptism primarily as a ritual to wash away original sin. I was honestly taken aback, she said. I, I didn't know that was the meaning. That seemed medieval to me. But I still wanted to have it done, and now I had to figure out why I wanted it. So she and Justin talked it through. Eventually, I realized it wasn't even about the connection to Christ. I think that is a relationship that a person should enter into willingly, and it happens in the heart, not in a ceremony, she said. 
She tried to imagine not having their daughter baptized just to see what feelings it brought up. And the funny thing, she said, is that my first thought wasn't about Jesus. It was a simpler thing. My first thought was, but I was baptized and my mother and daddy were baptized. She has to be baptized. It's what we do. So it wasn't about salvation or original sin or connecting her to Christ. It was about connecting her to my family, she said. Now, Justin's reaction to this news surprised even him. I was suddenly okay with it, or at least more okay, he said. I didn't like the idea of this supernatural ritual, and I really didn't like the original sin nonsense, but I was okay with her being welcomed into Sarah's family tradition that way, and even into their church. It's a nice church and a good community. Even if it meant something else to the church, I was fine knowing what it meant to Sarah and what it didn't. And I appreciated that, she said. The experience that Becca and I had at our megachurch was similar and different. I said I'd prefer not to have our son baptized, and Becca said that was fine, but then she threw in a variable. Would it be okay if we just had him dedicated instead, she asked. You know, for Grandma? Now, I didn't know what that meant, but it sounded harmless enough. And Google wasn't a thing yet, but laziness was. So I just said, sure, why not? There are words to that effect. It was a family thing for Becca, just like it was for Sarah. Doing this meant more to her than not doing it meant to me. Now, what I didn't know was what a dedication, this harmless-sounding thing, actually entailed in this and many other churches. A dedication is built around a solemn parental promise, something I only learned when the minister turned to us in the ceremony itself and said, In presenting this child for dedication, you are hereby witnessing to your own personal Christian faith. Dale and Rebecca, do you announce your faith in Jesus Christ and show that you want to study him, know him, love him, and serve him as his disciple, and that you want your child to do the same. Do you pledge to teach your child, as soon as he is able to learn, the nature of this holy sacrament? Watch over his education, that he may not be led astray. Direct his feet to the sanctuary. Restrain him from evil associates and habits and bring him up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. Or words to that effect. Becca squeezed my hand hard. It was not a squeeze of joy at the moment we were witnessing in our child's life. I knew that. It was a squeeze that said, Oh, God, my love, I didn't know. I promise I didn't, and if you can find it in your heart to fib just a little, I swear that I will never, ever ask you to do this again for any other children we may have. Amen. I squeezed back. And together we turned to the minister and said, Sure, why not? Or words to that effect. 
But Becca was a very progressive Christian, and she didn't like the idea of promising such a thing any more than I did. She wanted our kids to make their own decisions regarding religious identity. She had no intention of directing his feet to the sanctuary. Nor did she agree with the implication that other choices would be the same as leading him astray. Had we known at the time that there were other options, including more liberal and flexible Christian denominations, we might have pursued one of those instead. Or we might have considered a Unitarian child dedication in which parents work with the minister to create the kind of service they want, instead of having it thrust on them. It may or may not include a religious blessing. It will usually include an expression of the parents' hopes for the child. And it often includes a promise by the congregation to support and encourage the child in his or her own search for truth and spiritual enrichment. The parents are not required to be baptized, nor to pledge any particular upbringing for the child. That would have been better. There's also a growing tradition of meaningful humanist naming ceremonies conducted by humanist celebrants trained by the Humanist Society, which you may Google. Though Becca would become a secular humanist herself nine years later, I doubt that would have satisfied her or her family at that point. For us, the Unitarian ceremony would have been ideal. Live and learn. Another couple I interviewed, Lena, an Episcopalian, and her husband, Sean, who's an agnostic Baha'i, worked it out more intentionally without the need for any fatherly fibs. There was a little bit of a discussion when we baptized our two boys, said Lena. He was certainly not for it. My argument was, well, if there's no God, then it's just a bath, right? So what does it matter? Well, to be honest, it's never just a bath. And baptism has always been about more than God. In most Christian denominations, the ceremony is also meant to forge a bond between church and child, and even to reaffirm the faith of the parents. Even the Episcopal Church, which is far less doctrinally strict than most, calls baptism, quote, a full initiation into Christ's body, the Church, a bond that is indissoluble. And they say the ritual is, quote, designed to deepen the Christian formation of those who will present infants and young children for baptism. And parents promise to see that the child is brought up in the Christian faith and life, unquote. So, whether or not God exists, a human commitment to a particular faith is also being pledged. That's a sensible concern for many non-religious parents, and even for many religious parents, the ones who would prefer to wait until a child can choose his or her identity. In the end, Sean weighed these issues and agreed to the ceremony with one condition. He didn't want to be required to say anything himself about belief in Jesus or God. I completely understood, said Lena, and was grateful that he let me baptize the boys and that he would attend. He is that kind of man, and that's why I love him. Now, the baptism question is less serious than circumcision in one way. There are no little knives in sensitive places. But it's more serious in others. Questions of honesty arise, as well as the potential for one parent to feel that the child is being formally bonded to a community in a way that excludes that parent. 
The first step, as always, is to be well informed about the purpose and meaning of the ceremony, unlike me, not only to the church, but to the religious partner and his or her family. Whether you forego the ceremony or modify it or find another denomination or go the distance, couples should come to agreement between themselves first and then present a unified decision and reasoning to the extended family. The Raising Freethinkers podcast is a production of Only Sky Media, exploring the whole human experience from the secular perspective. Visit us online at onlysky.media. Thanks for listening. I'm Dale McGowan. See you next time for Raising Freethinkers. Thinkers.